Good morning. The reading this morning is from Proverbs 13. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. This is the word of the Lord. All right, if y'all would have a seat. Let me pray over the word this morning. God and Father, you have spoken to us uh, sufficiently through your word. Uh, Lord, in this uh, topic of money and wealth, uh, we need your help uh, to see and to understand with great clarity what is the things of your kingdom. And so we ask for your help this morning to see and discern, to take these things up together, to be guided by your word and the spirit and build a community here um, uh, centered on Christ, uh, even in the ways that we interact with money. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of this, and we pray all of it in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. So one of the things that we're at here at City Church is to build together a durable biblical worldview. Uh, that's a, a mouthful, but one of the things that we actually want to do is come together and to be uh, shaped and formed by God's word together as a community to see the world through biblical lenses, to see things as God sees them. So we build here a durable biblical worldview, and that's right at the heart of what we are doing this morning. And if you're looking to do that, it's a worthy endeavor. We've talked about it before. In fact, it's something that uh, for all of us, we could devote an entire life to, and we will never come to the end of the road in building a view of the world the way that God sees it. But if you want to get started, there are two questions that I feel like are irreducible. They're at the bedrock of a good foundation, and that is that every person in this world, every single one of them without fail, has to, whether consciously or subconsciously, decide who is God and who is man. You, you can actually go and ask somebody those questions and find out quite a lot about their worldview. If they say, well, uh, God is non-existent, he's a figment of the imagination of many people groups in this world, and man is inherently good and, uh, you know, messes up a few times here or there, but is inherently able to do things that are great and glorious, you have a worldview on your hands. You can actually go and test that out. If you go and ask somebody, like, who is God and who is man, and they say uh, God is uh, Allah, as revealed by the prophet Muhammad, you're going to know something about their worldview. Here at City Church, we say that God is the God of the Bible as he reveals himself to us there, uh, that he is uh, three in one, uh, the, the uh, one God, but in three persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this morning, uh, one of the questions that we're going to deal with is who is man? Who are we? How are we formed? What is it that makes up our substance? And throughout human history, there have been a lot of different uh, answers to this. In fact, you can go back and study history and find that uh, man at one time was primarily tribal. It was all about family. It was about clan. It was a about geography. It was about grouping. And so if you were to go and ask a Viking, who are you? They would be telling you who their father was and which clan they're a part of and which villages they conquered. And that would be a part of their identity. 
There are some places in the world and times at which uh, people would be defined, if you were to ask who is man, they would talk in terms of caste system. Here are the upper classes, here are the peasant classes. You could see this uh, everywhere from Great Britain to uh, modern day, uh, Great Britain of old, but then also modern day India. They would talk in terms of caste systems. You could talk with some people at some times about who is man, and they wouldn't talk about individuals. They would talk about the collective, more than just a family or clan, but uh, maybe a state or a nation. These are communal ideas of who man is. Having your identity outside of the community is something that doesn't even occur to certain segments of the human population, and so they would talk about it in that way. For the last hundred years, maybe even a little bit more, we've thought about man in an economic way. Man is primarily economic, and and you may not have ever thought of it that way, but I guarantee you that you think in that way. There's still some residue of that every time that you start a conversation. Hi, my name's Chris. What do you do for a living? Uh, There's something about like even just our jobs, how we earn money that goes right to the heart of how we think about man, how we think about the human race. Now, I think we're actually in the midst of a transition. I, I feel fairly satisfied that we're actually changing from a more economic idea of who a human being is to one that is more uh, therapeutic, one that's more psychological, one that is more self-oriented. Who am I on the inside and how do I express that? But the economic man is still very much a part of the way that we think about ourselves. In fact, if you want to understand the uh, 19th and 20th century without understanding this idea of economic man, you will misunderstand it. In the 20th century, man was primarily an economic animal. You are what you make. You are what you consume. You are who you make free associations with. And in fact, if you really wanted to know and understand something about the last uh, century, maybe century and a half, you could actually go and understand the intellectual foundations there uh, between two men that wrote, Adam Smith on one side and Marx on the other. Adam Smith wrote about the wealth of nations and about free markets and about how we uh, make free associations with people and about how the invisible hand guided through self-interest actually creates more human flourishing. Whereas Marx would have written Das Kapital about the worker, about how the uh, Industrial Revolution had really dismantled a lot of what was good about society. And in order to reclaim that, you have to see the worker as oppressed by oppressors and that they needed to bind together in a proletariat that uh, gained political consciousness and worked for a better world where this economic man, this worker, lived together in one party. You can't understand the last century, you can't understand the Cold War or even World War II without understanding man as an economic kind of man. In fact, if you want to take those two, it's a little reductionist this morning, but if you wanted to take a look at Marxist worldview, uh, his view of the oppressed worker and then all of the champions of that, Stalin and uh, Mao Zedong and Kim Il-sung and Ho Chi Minh and Castro, you could could actually go and test the theory about whether or not uh, the economic man is liberated in that kind of way. You could tally it up. You could take a look at the hundred million people that died in the 20th century at the hands of that ideology. That, that idea of the economic man can be tested. 
And we can do the same things with a capitalistic idea, too. You can go to uh, Smith's championing of the Industrial Revolution that forever changed the way that we view family and the way that family operates. You can take a look at the way that the free markets kind of hollowed out our souls and created a mindless public where we are constantly consuming things. You can hear it in our political ideologies where uh, if we're headed towards a re uh, recession, people are encouraged to consume, to consume, con to consume, and we can actually take a look at not 100 million dead, but we can take a look at billions of people that have forfeited their souls at the hand of consumerism. That may seem a little heavy-handed this morning, but if you don't understand that man being viewed as primarily an economic person and the ways that that affected human history, you really haven't understood the world that we live in. Devotees on either side of these divides often come in and either reject Christianity wholesale or try to co-opt Christ for their purposes. You, you probably are familiar, maybe it's uh, through extended family where people pretend that to be a Christian is to be a capitalist and that any word otherwise is not Christian. Well, that, that can't possibly be true. I had a very good friend, actually, uh, when we were in school, have a teacher that told her that if Jesus came back today, that he would be a communist. He'd be a communist. That was the imploring of this teacher. Well, how does that set with our understanding of Jesus? How does it set with our understanding of this world? How does it set with our understanding even of ourselves as, uh, as man, as human beings? Well, when Jesus returns, he will be neither a capitalist nor a communist. He will be a monarch. And we, his people, will be living in a kingdom as a kingdom people. So we're not, we're not subscribed to isms. We're asking the question this morning, how do we live as kingdom people and how does that relate to money and wealth and pleasure and power and these kinds of things? And here's what I think. When I take a look at this and when I take a look at how kingdom people think about money and wealth in the here and now, I see that Proverbs has a lot to say about it in a, in a wide variety of different passages. We're gonna touch on a few of them, but we're gonna take this one that's in front of us very seriously. And here's what I see here. I see that the good man leaves a lasting legacy. The good man leaves a lasting legacy. God designed us in these family units, extended family units, and he uses the family actually to convey an inheritance of something from one generation to the next. And you might go, I'm very familiar. My parents gave me a terrible inheritance. It is a lasting legacy, but uh, that legacy was one of hurt and pain and things like that. What we want to do this morning is actually reclaim some of that and know at the heart of it in Solomon's wisdom that the good man leaves a lasting legacy. And we're going to explore this idea through four different things. We're going to take a look first at the wise man's wealth. We're going to kind of juxtapose that with worldly wealth, so the wise man's wealth, worldly wealth. Then we're going to take a look at wealth worth living for, and then finally, whose wealth is worthy. So we're going to actually talk about who it is that has the wealth. 
And by way of some context here, I want to acknowledge that money is a particularly tricky subject. We all come in to this with certain sensitivities, certain tripwires in our own hearts. Maybe even things that if I were to say them this morning, you would be like, I'm out, I'm done, I'm not listening anymore. We all have those certain sensitivities about money, but Proverbs, and indeed the whole Bible, talks a lot about wealth and greed and money and stealing and dishonest gain and injustice, and Jesus too, we'll take a look at this here in a moment, in the Sermon on the Mount, talks a lot about money. In fact, one of my favorite pastors, the late pastor Tim Keller, once made a joke in a sermon that, I've, uh, that I listened to probably over a decade ago, that if he talked about money as as much as Jesus talked about money, that Redeemer never would have gotten off the ground. The Bible has a lot to say to us about money. Jesus has a lot to say about money. And so what I want to do is actually up front make a quick disclaimer, a quick point, and I want to turn over to Matthew chapter 6 before we even really start this, and I want to read a very familiar passage to you. Starting in chapter 6, verse 19, it says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And pay attention to this transition. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is, unhealth, is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be filled with darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And then pay attention to this. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Here, here's the quick disclaimer, here, the quick point that I want to make here. Uh, Jesus, in this very familiar passage, gives us uh, information about, uh, about wealth and finances and about the heart, and then he starts talking about eyes and darkness and light, and then he ends by talking about money. What do they have to do with one another? Before we can even approach the passage this morning, I want to submit to you for your consideration that if the eye is bad, your whole body would be full of darkness, means and intends for Jesus to communicate not to us, but to you, that all of us have some amount of blindness when it comes to money. Something in our hearts it, it gravitates towards money, uses money in unhealthy, unhelpful ways. It might be greed. It might be uh, dishonest gain. It might be stealing. It might be something. I don't know what your brand is, but what Jesus anticipates is, is that there is a blindness towards money. And what I want to do by way of pointing that out this morning is inviting you into a conversation to see that you might be blind and to be changed evermore by God's word. So the first point this morning, if God is to give us eyes to see Jesus at the intersection of our lives and money and to see clearly, we have to understand the wise man's wealth. Verse 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, says Solomon. This wise man has talked about what a good man does with his money. And this stands against something that I've found very commonly in the church, and that's a poverty mindset. 
especially in our kind of uh, movement and our sphere of influence, we've taken a look at the damnable uh, sin and teachings of the health, wealth, gospel, and we've rejected all of it. We've said, hey, if you're going to have pastors get up and talk about how the faithful are going to be due wealth and riches and health and prosperity, we need to reject that and then embrace a poverty mindset, that the true life of a Christian is one of poverty. It's one that stands apart from money. Well, that, this verse alone does not allow for that. A good man actually leaves an inheritance to his children's children. It is not inherently sinful to save money and to build an inheritance. It is also, equally on the other side, not more righteous to be poor. Instead, it is good to, quote, leave an inheritance. So the question in our mind should be, what is this inheritance? What is it that we are doing here? And what we have to give up is that leaving an inheritance is inherently sacrificial and it is inherently selfless. If you have worked to, just simply by using money as the moniker here, uh, to accumulate some amount of wealth and then give that not just to your children, but give enough that your children's children have an inheritance, what did you have to do? You had to be selfless and sacrificial. So the building of an inheritance is automatically, by nature, it is inherently sacrificial and selfless. And we're delivering it to someone specific. It's children's children. And that's where we get the first point on your markup this morning. The wise man's wealth is generational. The wise man's wealth is generational. A wise man plans generationally. Now, now how does he do that? This is bolstered by verse 24 that says that uh, essentially if you, uh, uh, that he who spares the rod, so the rod in this day and age would have actually been something that uh, either a shepherd would use to guide sheep, yes, by even giving physical discipline. It would have been something that a uh, father would have used to uh, bring physical discipline with children. But that's not the only thing. If you had been alive at this time, you would have heard rod and you would have thought maybe king holding a scepter or rod, a symbol of authority. So it is not for those that want to misuse and abuse this passage, it's not a, uh, a given for a parent to go and physically harass or beat or intimidate his children. That's not what that passage is about. What it is about is, is that a loving parent will look and seek to use the authority that they've been given in their children's life to bring discipline. Why is that even included in this passage? That would be a good question to ask of the writer Solomon. We need to know, like, why does he include this here? And it's because you cannot build generational wealth that is going to be helpful if you don't also raise children with the kind of character to use it. If Sawyer and I go about our lives building an inheritance for our children, and they are a rocky mess of a group of people, and then we've given them a whole bunch of money, all that they're going to do is have a lot of friends for a very short period of time, they're going to make a mess of things, and all of it's going to evaporate. None of that uh, hard work, that inheritance, that sacrificial, selfless living is lost on a generation that does not have the discipline to actually use it. And so here, we actually see the other part of that verse in 24 say, he who loves his child is diligent to discipline him. They're actually preparing not just the money and inheritance, but the generation to receive that. Money without character is dangerous. 
So we're not just looking to leave an inheritance of money. It goes beyond that. In fact, the context of this proverb is that Jesus, as the ultimate and wise father, is establishing and preserving his people. So it's not just a good idea that Solomon had. He's actually telling us what God is after, what God is doing with his people. So you might say, in response to this, and I know that many of us have compassionate hearts and would want to respond back to this, but not everyone can leave an inheritance to their children. So, so for those who can't, does that make them bad parents? Does that make them a bad man? If the good man leaves an inheritance, then you might say by looking at this that a bad man has not left an inheritance to his child, or that person is a fool, and we don't get to do that. Look at verse 23 with me. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much good. What does that mean? Fallow ground is empty ground that is resting. And what it's saying is, is that the poor, if they were to be able to till up that ground, there would be much food for them that the poor would actually have something of an inheritance to give. They would have provision, but what? But it is swept away through injustice. So nobody gets to walk in here and on one hand see, see and hear some sort of pastor taking this passage and saying, your goal in life is to earn as much money as you can and then to give it to your grandkids. No, that's not it. That's not all of it. We're concerned about the kind of inheritance that we leave also as a community. And what we find is, is that there are people that through uh, oppressive, uh, unjust means are actually prevented, in fact, having swept away their opportunity to actually give some kind of inheritance to their children's children. Solomon acknowledges that injustice often prevents the poor from building wealth. Now, we've got to make a distinction here because last week we talked about laziness. We talked about uh, the person that's unwilling to work, and it says poverty will come to him. Okay, so we're not talking about the poor, the person that is poor because of laziness, but we also don't get to pretend that all poverty is created by inability or laziness. Some of it is caused by injustice, and we have to see that here in this passage. So that begs the question for us, can a righteous man who is also poor leave an inheritance for the coming generations? And that's where we've got to deal with worldly wealth. So we're not just talking about the wise man's wealth, we're talking about worldly wealth. Verse 22, the second part of it says this, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. I'm going to say that again because there's a big message here and we need to get it this morning. But the sinner's wealth is weighed, uh, laid up for the righteous. This is good news to the poor. The unrighteous may seem like they, not us, have inherited the earth. But what we need to do is know and understand that the worldly wealth will not prevail. If we ask the question, does, the world, does worldly wealth prevail? Does it last for eternity? And the answer is no. We see in the Gospels that the Spirit anointed Jesus and he gives us his mission statement. And it is to proclaim good news to the poor. It is to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim, and I want to pay attention to this in particular, the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus brings good news for the poor. Those people who have been oppressed, those people where injustice has kept them from having what they needed, 
the sinner's wealth is being stored up for them, and Jesus intends to give the poor a righteous inheritance. This is great news, and it's not just great news for those who are uh, physically and financially poor, but for those of us who are spiritually poor, Jesus intends to give you a mighty inheritance. Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor, to set us free, to give liberty to the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is that all about? The year of the Lord's favor, if you had been a Jew at this time, if you had heard this out of Jesus' own mouth, you would have had in your mind something that happens every 50 years, and it's the year of Jubilee. What, what, what happened in the Old Testament is that God knows people well enough. He knows who man is to know that they're going to get themselves in debt, they're going to get themselves enslaved to things, that they're going to give away their inheritance. And the year of Jubilee, once every 50 years, in God's people, debt would be wiped away. People's inheritances that they may have uh, leveraged up would be given back to them, and slaves would actually be set free you kind of wonder if our world, the world that we live in right now, had a, uh, had a just due commitment to a year of jubilee, how much better binded together we would be, how much uh, the poor would rejoice in our midst, how we would look forward and long for the year of jubilee. Those who had taken advantage may not look forward to it, but the rest of us would look forward to it with great anticipation. And here, Jesus is saying that he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Kindly, the Lord knows that we, uh, our propensity towards debt and slavery and giving away our inheritance. And so he instills in his people an ethic of return, of reconciliation, of restoration, even of people's wealth and freedom. Verse 22 says this, that sinner's wealth is being stored up for the righteous. So when we ask the question, can, what if you're a poor man who's righteous and can't give an inheritance to your kids' kids? Are you, uh, are you out of the game? No, Jesus is actually storing up all of the sinner's wealth to give and deliver an inheritance, a kingdom, an everlasting one to the poor. The poor will come into God's kingdom they will weep with tears of joy to see that it is God that has given them not a year of jubilee, but an eternity of jubilee. God's kingdom is not impoverished. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Th think about this for a moment. Uh, if God created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh day, not getting into, you know, uh, young earth, new earth, any of those things. But if we take and consider that God made a world that was good in six days and then has gone into heaven ahead of us where he sits at the right hand of God and is preparing a place for us for two millennia now. How good, how right, how uh, rich this kind of place is going to be. John got a view of heaven. 
John was taken up to give a a view of heaven and all he could say was that uh, the streets are paved with gold and the the sea is so crystalline that it was made of crystals. He didn't even have the words to express the kind of richness that is in the kingdom of heaven. And what I hope is, is that if you have an impoverished view of God's kingdom, that you would be elevated out of that. We do not serve a poor God. We do not serve a God who does not want to bring us in to the riches and the beauty that he has created. He is creating a wonderfully new heaven and earth that is bountiful, that is beautiful. So we put our hope in that. Not our hope in security of worldly wealth. The good man focuses his efforts on that kind of inheritance. Proverbs 10, verse 15 says, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it uh, a wall too high to scale. What that's saying is, is that the rich think that their money is going to save them, that it's going to keep them safe, that it's going to protect them, that the walls of their wealth are too high for somebody to come in and take away from them. For many of us, we're not rich people, but we do imagine that our 401k gives us a certain amount of security, that nobody can really take that away from us. Or we're extremely anxious that somebody will, rather than just simply trusting God. We put our hope and our security in our worldly wealth, but here's what we need to hear from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4. It says this, wealth is worthless on the day of wrath but righteousness delivers from death. So this morning we need to hear, and here's the next point, that worldly wealth is worthless. Worldly wealth is worthless on the day of wrath. Your money cannot save you, but righteousness can. Worldly wealth cannot protect you from the travails of God's wrath, but you can actually be saved in the righteous. The righteous one, only the righteous can deliver you from death. So why do we spend so much of our time on money and wealth when we know, we inherently know that it can't go with us and that it cannot deliver us? And that's where we've got to start talking about a wealth worth living for. Verse 25 says this, righteousness Oh, sorry, the righteous has enough to satisfy, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. What is that talking about? The righteous uh, has enough to be satisfied, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. It's not talking about how much you have, it's talking about your natural propensity here. So the righteous person, whether they have much or they have very little, is going to be content, is going to be trusting of God to provide. But no matter how much you have, if you are wicked, you will always suffer want. Why is that? What could give the righteous satisfaction and contentment? Why does sin create insatiable longing? And that's where we've got to revisit Matthew chapter 6 that I just uh, read earlier from the Sermon on the Mount. We see that that those um, uh, those who are righteous don't lay up treasures here on earth but in heaven. Why? That set of verses is very clear. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
What I get out of that, and this is very important this morning, and it's one of our blanks this morning, is that we live for what we treasure. We live for what we treasure. If you are looking for security, you'll do everything that you can to provide yourself security. If you live for pleasure, you'll do everything that you can with your money to provide as much uh, pleasure as you can. If you want prestige and power, if you want somebody to think highly of you, to think about you all the time, you will live for it. These kinds of things, your treasure is what you live for. And according to Jesus, there are only two types of treasure, and that means that there's only two types of lives that are lived, those that are earthly and those that are heavenly. Those are the only two choices according to Jesus. Living life enslaved to money and materialism, dissatisfaction is ruinous to us. I want to see if this plays out in your life, because maybe you don't think of yourself as a particularly greedy person or an anxious person, but maybe because of the injustice that you do see in our world, you quite often think about the haves and the have-nots, the oppressors and the oppressed. You think quite a lot about those who have a lot of money accumulated and why they don't show, uh, you know, share that with others. And so in your heart of hearts, you distrust and you despise the rich. That's in some of our hearts, right? To take a look at what other people have and not just covet it, not just want it, but actually despise people because they have it. That's some of our stories. For some of us, we don't do that at all. We, we uh, want that, we strive after that, we don't necessarily uh, disagree with it. On, on my way here this morning, I drove past a sign that somebody had graffitied on the side of a wall, uh, eat the rich. Now, I don't know precisely what that means. I hope that it's not like uh, endorsing cannibalism of some kind, but uh, I don't think that it's a good thing. I think that whoever wrote that on a wall probably doesn't like the rich very much. But what I do know about the human heart, what I feel in myself, is actually the exact opposite. When I come across people that are the have-nots or maybe don't have as much as I do, oftentimes, sometimes really subtly or subconsciously, I think of them as lesser. I don't value their advice as much. I don't, think, I don't have a position of humility where I could learn something from them. Oftentimes, we, we, we either hate the rich for what they have, or we, dis, we wouldn't say it this way, but we despise the poor in that way. We disregard them. We don't think about the injustice that they are experiencing. Man, that's, that's a big deal, and we've got to be honest about it. But what the gospel does is it reorients our treasures dramatically. The gospel comes in and wants to reorient the things that we treasure in every way. When I say that we live for our treasure, what I mean to say is I want for us to take a look at the gospel of Jesus Christ where if we live for our treasure, we see Jesus dying for his treasure. What do I mean by that? We live for our treasure, but Jesus dies for his treasure. When, when we see uh, there his words, uh, pay attention to where your treasure is because there your heart will be also. We've got to then take a look at the life of Jesus. Jesus leaves his rightful throne of riches in heaven. And what does he do? He goes to pursue, he goes to pursue his greater, greatest treasure. What is his greatest treasure? It's the church. 
It's you. Here's the essence of the gospel. For those of us who get enrolled and wrapped up with the things that we treasure that are here, that are earthly treasures. We're storing up something here on this world. Jesus takes a look at us in that pitiable state and he says, you are my treasure. I'm going to leave all of my uh, heavenly celestial throne room of glory and I'm going to come here and I'm not going to live for you, but I'm actually going to die for you. That that, uh, verse that we just covered where it talks about storing up treasures in heaven, Jesus literally comes here to die for his treasure so that he can put his treasure in heaven. And that's us, that's you this morning. We get to know with great certainty, all of the certainty of Jesus' death on the cross, that he treasures us. And then he stores us up in heaven. Therefore, Jesus becomes our priceless pearl. If someone dies for you, then they become the object of your affections, your treasure, and you go and you sell everything so that you might have that pearl of great price, just like Jesus did for us. So so here's how this applies. A lot of us are like, Pastor, I know that it's coming. Just get to the tithe part. Just tell me what I'm supposed to give. Like, let's just get it over with. Here's what you're not going to hear from me this morning. This is not a sermon about tithing. Maybe we'll do that another time. Giving and giving generously is a big deal. But what I want to extrapolate, what I want to pull out of this principle of Jesus giving everything is that a tithe, literally meaning 10%, it's not enough. Not to this church. I'm not asking you to give more than you're giving right now. What I'm telling you is is that if Jesus comes and dies for his treasure, he's given everything. That means that the Old Testament principle of a tithe doesn't, it's not there anymore. What we have to do is actually be willing to give up our entire selves to Jesus. Your checking account? Yeah, your checking account. Your time? Your time. The resources that God gives you, he wants you to give all of them back to him. I want to encourage you this morning to think about the things that Jesus has done for you, the the ways that he has pursued you, the way that he has treasured you and then stored you up in heaven, and then just be willing to go, Jesus, I want to give all of myself back to you, including my money. Jesus is our pearl. He is priceless. We sell everything to go and get him. Finally, whose wealth is truly worthy? Back to verse 22, it says this, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. The good man does this. The good man leaves a lasting legacy because the God man leaves a lasting legacy to all generations. Why is it that we would spend uh, our time and our money investing in our children? Why would we um, uh, have sleepless nights, changing diapers? Why would we take our time to uh, teach and to catechize our children? Why would we put up with tantrums? Why would we uh, lovingly, graciously have a conversation for the 200th time? Why would we do that? We want to give an inheritance. We want to bequeath something of eternal value to our children. The good man leaves a lasting legacy because that's exactly what the God man does for us. The gospel changes the hearts of parents to leave a spiritual inheritance because that's precisely what Jesus did. 
Proverbs chapter 10, verse 16 says this, uh, the wages of the righteous are life, but the earnings of, wick- of the wicked are sin and death. Beloved, we need to be working to give life to our kids, just like Jesus did with us, just like he brought us in, but just because he treasures us. We, if we truly treasure our children, we need to be thinking generationally about the kind of inheritance that we want to give to them and that we want to give to their children and that we want them to give to their children's children. And that's the entire enterprise that we're after here at City Church. We want to create a fabric so thick, a culture so integral, a common idea of what we want for our children, that there's no way for us not to be investing in them in Kid City and building out city students and be partnering with one another through the thick and thin of parenting. Be challenging one another where we're getting lazy or complacent or uh, harsh dads with our words towards our kids or idolizing moms with our kids and their success. We need to build a place here at City Church that doesn't just focus on giving our kids money but that gives them an everlasting and eternal inheritance forever and ever. And we can do that here at City Church. If you want to know kind of a top line uh, like theme all the way through Proverbs, we didn't deal with it much today, but if you wanted to know that there is a lot more that Proverbs has to say about money, has to say about dishonest weights and scales, has to do with uh, you know, dishonesty in terms of gain, has to do with greed and everything else. Uh, I came across this really wonderful quote in a commentary that said that the wicked disadvantage a community to advantage themselves and the righteous disadvantage themselves to build up the community. That's the kind of place that I want to create here at City Church is the kind of place where we together sacrificially disadvantage ourselves to give an inheritance to the next generation, to our children's children. The good man leaves an inheritance to the generations. Let us do that together. Bow with me in prayer. Father, help us to be like your son who disadvantaged himself unto death to advantage us who gave himself up to us, uh, his treasure, to store us in heaven. This world and what it calls wealth pulls at our feet. It floods our consciousness. It fills our inbox. It distracts us from the eternal inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Help us to put our hopes, our affections, our desires on him. Help us to sell everything that we might buy Jesus Help us to live in the here and now for our treasured Savior. Enlighten our eyes with the light of Jesus that our whole body might be filled with light. No longer ignorant of the way that money has its sway in our lives. Let us deal justly with others. Secure in you, would you allow us to no longer despise the rich, but ask them and call them towards stewardship of what you have given us but pray for their submission to you and the stewardship of your resources. Secure in you, make us humble, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, as better than the poor. Make us honest and hardworking. Allow us to be like the God-man and leave a lasting legacy. Father, we pray this impossible prayer 
in the name of Jesus and ask you that you would accomplish it for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.